Good morning, everybody. Hey, if you're a guest with us, my name is Rob. I'm one of the ministers here at New Hope. Uh, glad to be able to uh, preach to you this morning. And uh, I feel like I haven't been up here for a little while, so I'm, I'm kind of excited. So you're going to kind of, I get to talking too fast, just hold your hand up and tell me to slow down. Uh, or don't, that distracts people. But I am glad that you're here this morning. Uh, a couple things. We're finishing a series we've been in for a long time in the book of Philippians. We've been studying this little letter in your New Testament, and it's coming to a close today. So we're going to be in Philippians chapter 4. Next week, we start a six-part series on Advent. We're preaching through Christmas and the story of Christmas and the anticipation that it uh, builds in us looking forward to the final coming of Jesus. We're going to have resources for your family uh, to go through Advent together, to be doing devotions at home. Uh, There'll be all kinds of neat things that we're going to be doing. Um, One of them is each year as a church, we try to think, how can we be generous, externally generous in the community? And for many years, we partnered with an organization uh, doing what was called Operation Christmas Child, where you bring shoe boxes and they'd be sent all over the world. This year, due to some transition and different things here at the church, we weren't able to be a drop-off location for Operation Christmas Child. So we got to thinking, what can we do? And we determined we wanted to do something locally here in our county, in our community, um, to provide Christmas and to serve and to be generous. And so uh, a couple things. One, we decided to do it for Thanksgiving and for Christmas. And so for Thanksgiving, we thought for three straight weeks, we'll use our generosity buckets. They're at each exit, and it's like, hey, if you've got an extra dollar, put it in there. And whatever we collect, we'll, we'll go to the caring center in Boone County, and we'll be able to provide Thanksgiving dinner for families that need help. Uh, and you guys have given over $3,000 in that in just two weeks, and it ends this week, and you've just kind of blown us away with your generosity. Uh, and so we're going to be able to provide Thanksgiving dinner for a lot of families here in our community. So thank you. Um, going into the Christmas season, we thought, let's do something similar. So we're going to partner with the Boone County Mentoring Partnership, and uh, they're going to get us a list, not names, but a list of uh, some families that might need some help for Christmas with a list of some gifts. And there'll be a Christmas tree out in the lobby starting next week, and you can grab a little ornament off the Christmas tree, and it'll give you the list of gifts that you can go and buy as a family, wrap them up, and bring them back. And you may not know exactly who they're going to go to, but they're going to go bless a a lot of families, and we're really excited about that. So uh, thank you in advance for your generosity when it comes to that and for your generosity in providing Thanksgiving uh, dinner for a lot of families here in the community. So let's pray, and we'll jump in this morning. Father, thank you uh, for the opportunity we have to serve and to be uh, your hands and feet in this community. Thank you for a church that responds to that call and is so generous and sacrificially gives to meet the needs of others. And God, as we transition our attention and our focus to your word, I pray that you would speak to us clearly this morning that your Holy Spirit would bring to the front of our minds and hearts what you would have us to remember and take from this place. And we pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've been here for a little while, um, then you'll know this. And if you're a guest, you'll learn it today. I'm a very big fan of sports. Uh, My whole life, I've I've enjoyed playing sports and watching sports. And one of the things that really uh, has always stood out to me, uh, I I have my teams, uh, like the Dolphins, sorry, Come on, I have, to, I have to, a little bit. I have to enjoy that. Uh, you're not going to like me here in a second. Uh, but, I, but what's really stood out to me is I've been a fan of like these athletes that come along once in a generation, and they kind of transcend the sport and culture. They just kind of stand out above others. The Michael Jordans, the Tiger Woods, Peyton Manning. Um, and now at the risk of losing the audience for the rest of the sermon, I need to be real honest with you. One of the athletes that stands out to me is one of those that has always fascinated me is Tom Brady. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There we go. Uh, it's church, people. Be nice. Okay. Uh, he is, uh, he's just fascinating to me as a guy who uh, stays young. I don't know how he does it in such a brutal sport. 
He's a great quarterback. He's a proven winner. He's just fascinating to watch play. And one of the things that I've always appreciated about him is when he's interviewed, his candor. He's, he's not only a prankster and he goofs off, but, he, but he's also real honest. And back in 2005, after winning his third Super Bowl, he had this to say about winning the Super Bowl. I thought it was very revealing of our culture. He said this, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and I still think that there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what is important. I've reached my goal, my dream, my life. But me, I think, man, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this, this isn't, this can't be all that it's cracked up to be. This can't be all that it's cracked up to be. This is a guy who's just never satisfied. He, he, he's never satisfied. He has this insatiable desire for more all the time. After uh, the 2015, or right before the 2015 season, coming off of a Super Bowl victory, his fourth, uh, he said, he made a video, and it, the video said, hey, you know what my favorite Super Bowl ring is? The next one. Now, think about this. Remember, this is a guy who's at the top of the cultural mountaintop, if you will. He has millions and millions of dollars. He's famous. He's successful in sports and in business. He's respected by his peers. He's married to a supermodel. He has healthy and happy family. He owns multiple homes all over the world. And when you listen to him, he sounds like a guy who just got out of watching an overhyped movie. He's just not, he's not satisfied. It's not enough. Maybe you're thinking, like, well, Rob, that's what makes him so successful. It's that drive. It's that I'm never satisfied. I always need to get more. I always have to go after more. And I think you'd be right uh, at least a little bit, but I think there's more going on here. I think this guy's really struggling. I think he's wrestling. He's wrestling with what we would call contentment. He can't seem to find it. No matter where he turns and how much success he seems to find in his life, he kind of comes to the end of it and he says, I'm still hungry for more. Is this really it? He finds himself scratching his head with his Super Bowl ring adorned hand and saying, is there not more than this? Is there not more to life than just this, this, this success that I found? Now, Tom Brady, Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods, their experiences, and that maybe be the last time I say his name, so there you go, will be... Their experiences are unique to professional athletes, but discontentment is something that I think every single one of us has experienced. And what we do is we relativize it or we minimize this insatiable desire that we have for more. We justify uh, the way that we spend our money and the things that we're going after. We just say, oh, I really needed this thing. I had to go spend money on it. I had to have this house, this car, this fill in the blank in order to be happy. And we find ourselves like him scratching our head wondering, is this it? I mean, I've been pursuing this for however many years, and I finally got a hold of it. And for some reason, I'm still wondering, is this it? Is it all it was cracked up to be? Is it really satisfying? And the thing is, I think we not only have that problem, but that problem is getting worse because we live in a culture that's telling us to chase after items and things and experiences that will leave us discontent in an effort to reach contentment. Go after this, achieve this, win the day, do this thing. We hunger for something that's going to satisfy us, but we're chasing after things that continually leave us hungry. Rather than admitting that we've got a problem, that it's getting worse, we begin to celebrate an unhealthy drive, a hurried pace in life. Those with more money, more followers, more likes, more recognition, and less time, less rest, and less satisfaction become our heroes. The people we elevate, the people we admire, the people we tell our kids to go and be like and to work and to, to, to chase after. I heard one preacher say it this way, we have sanctified selfishness. We have taken selfishness and made it a spiritual strength, a spiritual fruit. We've done this in the church. We've done this in the culture, everywhere else. And so everything about uh, our culture, our life, everything surrounding us is about advancing our cause, achieving our goals, and winning the day. And we seem to be left more dissatisfied, discontent, 
scratching our heads and wondering, man, is this really it? Is this what life is really supposed to be about? From recent college graduates saying, I don't know what I want to do with the rest of my life, to retirees who look back and say, I don't know what I just did with my life. We're just discontent. We're not happy. We're not satisfied. And here's the thing. This internal battle that many of us feel, like whether you follow Jesus and you call yourself a Christian or you're not, you felt this tug, this desire to reach this contentment, and it's in each and every one of us, and we pursue things to try to scratch that itch only to realize we can't quite get to it. Can't quite scratch the itch, and I just still feel like I need more, and I need to do more, and I need to achieve more. I find myself like that quarterback who will remain unnamed now, saying, I've got all these victories, and I still, I still don't know what life is all about. It's not new. It's been all throughout culture for all of time. And we've been plagued with this desire for contentment since the fall. Since Eden left and we can't get back to it. We've desired something deep within us that wants to be satisfied. The Apostle Paul knew this battle well. The people he's writing to in this letter we've been studying for all these weeks, the letter to the Philippians, they lived in a culture where they knew well the desire for contentment that doesn't seem to be achievable. The desire for contentment that seems to drive every decision that they were making. Remember, it was Rome that coined the phrase, climb the social ladder, look out for number one. They were pursuing pleasure over principle. And so Paul writes this letter, and as they wonder in their own lives, will we ever actually be able to slow down? And will we ever actually be able to be present and to enjoy the life that uh, we seem to be blessed with but have to drive so hard to continue to achieve more? Paul writes this letter, and at the very end of the letter, he says, hey, I want to leave you with something. It's one of the most important lessons that I've learned in my life. And I want to be really clear with you guys. I want you to take this lesson and I want you to apply it to your lives. You can't forget this important thing. And he lays it out for him. And so this morning we're going to read this. And I like what Ben did earlier, so we're going to do it again. If you would stand with me, we're going to read Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through uh, 23. And we're going to bring our attention really to 10 through 13 as we study this morning. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes as he closes out this letter to his friends in the city of Philippi. He says, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all of this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good for you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out for Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you said you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent. Even they are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all of God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All of God's people here send you greetings, especially those who are, belong to Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. You can be seated. So he closes out this letter with a clear reminder of what he calls one of the most important lessons he's learned in his life. 
And he's learned this lesson through all of the different experiences that he's had in his life. He's learned uh, this incredible lesson of contentment. Now he's going to reveal some things to us. We're just going to look at uh, verses 10 through 13. And we're going to look at what contentment is not and what it is. Paul kind of reveals some things to us. The, the first lesson, when you pull from this passage, what Paul's getting at is that contentment is not, it is not based on your circumstances. It's not. Because it can't be. Do you remember Paul's current situation? Now, we've talked through this throughout this series. Not what he had gone through in his life. Now, we also have talked through that. I mean, shipwrecked and beaten and left for dead, all of that. But even now, as he's sitting down to write this letter, what he's experiencing when he writes this letter to this group of Christians, he's on house arrest. It's different than what we experience. See, for him, he would have been in a a prison cell in Rome, uh, able to do things like writing these letters. Uh, Some people could come and visit him, but 24 hours a day, seven days a week, he was attached to a high-ranking guard. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, someone attached to your side. They'd learned their lesson. The last time they just put him in a cell, there was an earthquake. And so this time they thought, we're going to stay attached to him. And so that's what they do. They stay attached to him 24 hours a day. He can't eat, can't have a private conversation. He can't even go to the restroom without a guard attached to his side. Now, this has been going on for years. So think about what he's experiencing. His life is anything but comfortable and enjoyable in this moment. When he sits down to write this letter, it's not fun, it's not enjoyable, it's not the good life, his circumstances are anything but what you would choose for yourself. So how is it then, in verse 10, when the Apostle Paul begins to close out this letter, he says, I rejoice. I rejoiced greatly when you sent me all of these different gifts that you didn't always have, but you sent them to me. How is it that a guy that has experienced what he experienced and is currently living the way he's living can say, When I think about my life, I rejoice. Now, I've had the, honestly, and I think it's a privilege and an honor in ministry to to be a pastor, to sit in the living room of hurting people. I know in a room like this, many of you, the circumstances you find yourself in right now, they're not what you would have chosen for yourself. Just think about in a room with this many people in it, statistically, we're sitting here and we're thinking, this is not how I would have planned out my life. This is not where I wanted to end up. This is not, and the Apostle Paul's thinking, I always wanted to go to Rome, and I always wanted to bring the gospel to Rome, but I didn't think I'd have to do it like this, awaiting a trial from a leader who's probably going to kill me. How does he rejoice? And you think, I'm going to come to church, and life right now doesn't feel happy, and it's not comfortable, and it's not going the way that I want it to go, and they're going to tell me that I need to rejoice. Well, how in the world does a guy like Paul rejoice? How am I supposed to rejoice in the midst of these circumstances. And I think for Paul, one of the lessons he learned is that there is a very big difference between happiness and joy. Notice that Paul did not say, I was really, really happy based on these circumstances. He says, no, I rejoiced in the midst of them. You see, for us, we've confused these words. We've, we've almost morphed them together, happiness and joy, like it's the same thing. And often we attach our contentment, our ability to really be at peace with our happiness. We think about our circumstances and how we want them to be better. If we could just get to this achievement, we could get to this goal. If I could just get this season of my life underway, if I could just get past this season of my life, then I will be content. I really will be at peace. I just got to get to this milestone moment only to find out when we get there, it doesn't work. We want happiness everywhere. Our marriages to be happy. We want our kids to just be happy. And all of that's fine and good. But when life circumstances come our way and it's not happy, Then what? See, we base our contentment on things that are so far out of our control, like life's circumstances. 
But joy is different. It's rooted in something a lot deeper than your life circumstances. See, for Paul, he was rejoicing because he learned that his circumstances will always change. It's not a might or a maybe. You see, when Jesus taught this at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he said, hey, not if the storms come your way. Like, there's a way that you can live life. Jesus said, there's a way you can live life where you can just build this life, and don't worry, pain will never come your direction. That's just not it. He says, when the storms hit, they're coming, they're going to hit. And when they hit, the foundation of your joy, so vitally important, not your happiness, Paul is saying, I've learned this thing. I've learned this. That it's not my circumstances that determine my joy. It's the unchanging, unmoving God that's going to determine my joy, not these changing and, and constantly moving circumstances that I find myself in. And that's what he's pleading with them. He says, look, you've got to understand that when pain comes your way, it will reveal where your joy is rooted every time. And he says, for far too many of us, it's fleeting. He would say, hey, your marriage, your parenting, it's not about your happiness. It's about your holiness. There's a big difference, really big difference. So he says it's not based on our circumstances. The second thing we learn from verses 11 and 12 where he says it's, it's not about pretending. He doesn't say, hey, I've learned as a Christian that if I'm following Jesus and life gets hard, i got to fake it, which is what a lot of us do. He says, I just got to fake it. i got to put a smile on my face and pretend that everything's good i gotta, I got to always be cheerful, always be excited, and always pretend to be happy because that's how Christians get through difficulty. Paul says that's not the case. As a matter of fact, two different times. Here's a principle for studying the Bible. When you're alone, you're reading the Bible by yourself. Here's just a really important tool for you, and, and the tool would be said this way. If it's repeated, it's important. And in these two verses, two different times, Paul uses the same phrase. He says, I have learned to be content. I have learned the secret of being content content. That's a really key phrase in this entire book because he says, I'm not faking it. I've just learned some lessons through the pain, through the difficulty of my life. I've learned these lessons. And the one that I think is most important is I've learned to be content. He said, I didn't learn this by faking it and put a smile on my face. I learned this by walking through the valleys and the difficulty and the circumstances that didn't go my way. And I learned that in the midst of it all, I can still be content. But he says it's a secret. Now, I find that fascinating that he uses the word secret uh, to describe this because a secret is something that's not obvious to everybody. It doesn't stand out, but it's something you want to know. Like a secret, right, when you learn about a secret, it's something I want to know, but I don't know it, and I'm trying to, I'm curious about it, and it seems to continually elude us. And, and you felt this, right? Again, whether you follow Jesus or you don't, you have felt this desire to go and, and reach contentment. I really want this, but it seems to be something I can't quite get, so I'm going to chase after all these other things to try to find it. It's this secret that some people seem to have, and I can't seem to get content. No matter how hard I work, no matter how hard I drive, no matter how different things I achieve and all the accomplishments I have, I can't seem to quite get it. I really want it, though. It's just this secret that continually eludes me. Look, have you ever been on the um, outside of a secret that you really wanted to know? Like, honestly, like you have somebody in your life that knows something that you don't know and you really want to know it. You ever felt that? I've f felt that a lot. Maybe people just don't like telling me their uh, secrets. But I felt that where I was like, I want to know. So what do you do? You're preoccupied with it. They know something that I don't know. I really want to know it. How did they know it? I, I got to figure this out. And so what do you, you, you daydream about it. You start to plan and plot ways to get them to reveal it. You're like, well, what if I just ask you like yes or no questions? Can you just like answer yes or no? And then I can try to, well, what if you don't actually say it, but I say it. And then you can just confirm that I got it right. Like, we just really are pre right? Paul says this is exactly why contentment's a secret. Trying to figure it out in every single approach to my life, every arena of my life, I'll do whatever it takes. i got to find it. And Paul's saying it's a secret 
that's been revealed. And in all the things that we're pursuing, he says, you've got to understand this secret is a gift that's given to you. It's not something you achieve. It's not something that you accomplish. But for us, we're going to keep going after it. I've got to have it. And so we think to ourselves, man, if, if, whether we're dating or we're, we're single or we're engaged, we're like, all right, I've I got to get married. If I get married, then everything's going to be good and I'm going to be content. Or we're thinking, man, it's not even just about marriage. If I can just have kids, I just want to be a dad. All my life I've wanted to be a mom. All my life I've wanted to be a dad. And I just, I just want to do that. It's like, so important to me. And so we go after it and everything we want. Only to find out that, right, like anybody who's been married longer than 11 seconds can tell you, like, hey, it's not all happy, right? Or at least my wife would tell you that. <laughs> it's not. There are seasons that go up, and they're great, and they're awesome, and then there's these valleys you walk through when you're married, and it's not all going to leave you feeling content. And with parenting comes worry. With parenting comes anxiety. With parenting comes frustration, <laughs> It's not all it's cracked up to be, and we leave ourselves wondering, I thought all I had to do was get married or have kids, and what we learn is that these incredible experiences, look, being married is awesome, being a parent is awesome, but they are mere tastes. They are glimpses of the real thing. They are not the substance. We'd say they're the icing on the cake. You ever been around somebody who only wants to eat icing? Right? You get cupcakes, and they're like, I just want the icing. Who cares? But if you had a regular, that's fine, like, for a cupcake, but if you had a regular diet of only icing, like, you die. It doesn't work. You can't do it. But circumstances are icing on the cake. They're not the cake. And Paul's saying the secret is understanding what the cake really is. And so for us, it's like, in an effort to show everybody, I found it, I'm content, what do we do? We put pictures of our marriage up, and it's like awesome. And look how happy you guys are. And look at this awesome picture of your family, and I'm going to tell the whole world about this new thing I've achieved and done. And what happens is everybody likes it, and it feels really good for this fleeting moment. And then what? When it wears off, what do you feel like you need to do? Get another picture up there because that felt really good. I was content for like all of those likes and now it's worn off. So I'm going to go do it again and again and again. And we realize it's just not satisfying. It's just this cycle we're, we're caught up in. And Paul says it's not based on your circumstances, right? And it, it's a secret that's been revealed to you, right? So you can't, you can't achieve this on your own. So what is contentment then, Paul? I like the way that uh, Eric Raymond says it. He says this, and it's not going to appear on the screens, but it's a definition that I, I, I really resonate with. He says this, biblical contentment. Contentment. It's this inward, gracious, quiet spirit that joyfully rests in God's pre- presence and provision. So he says it's this connection you have to him. So look at verse 13. He says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. So the first thing we learn that contentment is then, it's about his strength and our weakness. It's about the strength that he gives us. But it's really about our weakness. It's recognizing that we're weak. Now, don't get this verse wrong. Don't sanctify selfishness and take this verse out of context like every coffee mug and Christian calendar in the country does. Paul is not saying that Jesus will give you the strength to do whatever it is you want to go and do. He'll make you a better athlete. He'll make you a better businessman. And you can do it all. through. That's not what he's saying here. Remember where he is. He's in prison attached to a guard. His life has not worked out the way he thought it would. His dreams did not come to fruition the way he pictured that they would. But in all of it, he says, I can get through this because I'm weak. And I don't have what it takes. But my joy is rooted in the one who can give me strength. My joy is rooted in the one who can help me to endure and get through this. He says, I have learned this secret, that I'm weak and powerless. 
And I can't get through this on my own. And this circumstance may not change. And Caesar may decide that I'm going to die and then I'm going to die. But I have learned that even if that's the case, I've got this joy that comes from something outside of myself. And it comes into me and works its way out of me. It is an inward change that changes everything. It begins to change my entire life. Think about it this way. Think about a child who has their contentment in a toy that you've given them. Anybody? You've probably never experienced this, right? I've got a two-year-old. If I give him a toy, he's happy. Now, is his contentment working from the inside out when I hand him the toy? No. You know how I know that? I take the toy away from him, right? And what happens? World War III, he flips out. I need that. I need that. I need that. That's what my little two-year-old is getting really used to saying. I need that right now. That's how he says it. I need that right now. Right now. I need that. And he's not happy until he gets the toy back, right? And we think, oh, man, his, like he doesn't know what it really means to be content, but not a lot changes when we're older, does it? I mean, we got a big smile on our face when things at work are going well and the bills are being paid and everybody in the house is happy. What happens when you take that away? What happens when things don't go exactly the way you want, when circumstances change? Then what? Is it World War III? Like, is it Jesus plus me being happy? Is it Jesus plus me getting everything I want? Is it Jesus plus me being the center of attention, or is it just Jesus? Because Paul tells us right here that it's about me being weak and him being strong. Let me illustrate for you another way. See, this is a, this is a perfect way. Philippians 4.13 is a perfect way for us to understand the difference between being spiritually healthy and spiritually sick. So let me use this analogy. When you wake up in the morning on a cold day, this morning when I got up, I realized I'd left my winter coat in the car overnight because I'm a genius. And so I went and got it, and I brought it back in the house, and I turned the car on, and I waited for a while. Right? And maybe you've experienced this. When you get up on a day that it's kind of cold outside, and you go and put, like, your clothes on, they feel what? They feel cold. But your body, when you're healthy, when your body's healthy, exudes an amount, a certain amount of heat. So it doesn't take long for that colder shirt to warm up, does it? Because the heat that's in you begins to work its way out of you. Now, when you're sick, it's not quite that way. When you're sick and your body is sick and you have the chills, and you get up and you try to put on a, a sweatshirt, you still can't seem to get warm because your body temperature is not producing the heat to warm up what's been coming your way. And so you put a blanket on, you still can't. So what do you got to do? You got to go by the fireplace. You got to go sit by a heater in order to warm yourself up. But as soon as you get away from the fireplace or the heater, what happens? You begin to get cold again. It fades and wears off until your body gets healthy. The same thing is true spiritually. See, someone who is spiritually healthy, connected to Jesus, finding their joy in Christ, when life's circumstances come their way, they will feel the chill of that moment. This is not what I planned. This is not what I want. This is not the experience I would have put before my life. This is not how I would have planned everything out. This is not what I wanted for my life. But what happens is over time, the initial shock begins to wear off because the heat of the grace that they're experiencing in Christ begins to wear off. And all of a sudden, that circumstance loses its power to rob them of their joy. But someone who's spiritually sick, on the other hand, Someone who spiritually can't seem to get it uh, connected to, they're not connected to the Lord, they don't know Jesus, they're not, and life begins to come their way. They feel the chill of that moment, and it begins to break everything down. And sure, some friends can come along and help them justify behavior, help, help them make them feel a little better, uh, provide a little bit of encouragement. You can go to podcasts and self-help books all you want, but they're just fireplaces. And the moment the fire goes away, the chill of the circumstance begins to take over again. And Paul is saying, I have found the secret. 
that no matter what comes my way, even if it's chilly at first, if I find my strength in Christ, it warms the circumstances that are around me. So contentment is about our weakness and his strength, but it's also not just finding our strength in him, but finding our deepest satisfaction in Jesus, consistently finding that what I'm satisfied in, not just what I'm strengthened by, but I actually find my deepest satisfaction in Jesus. Remember how Paul describes the goal of his life. He didn't always start out this way. This is a dude that was murdering people. Okay, remember this. This is a guy that was killing Christians until he became one. Okay, this is a guy that did not have his life going that direction. All of a sudden, he becomes a Christian, and now everything changes for him. And the way he describes his life in Philippians 1 and Philippians 2 and Philippians 3 is this. I just want to know Jesus. No matter what I've accomplished in my life, the goals that I've got, no matter how many people see me a certain way, I just want to know him. I just want to know Jesus. I want to spend time with him. Why? Because the more time I spend with him, the more contentment I experience. He is my deepest satisfaction. And I think, man, what about us? Do we find our deepest, not just our strength, not just endurance, but like I'm actually, I can't wait to spend time with him. I can't wait to open the Bible and read God's word and just spend time with him, invite him into every part of my life. Or are we more like my kids when I take them to the dentist? We go into the dentist a couple times a year with the kids, right? And they sit down in the dental chair. And after the picking and the clean, right, they, they get the cleaning. Then the, the hygienist says, what? It's time for some fluoride. And so they pick their flavor. I always love it when they don't pick a flavor that they like. But they pick this flavor, and they put the gushy stuff on their teeth, and it cleans their teeth. It's, it's really good for them. It's good for their hygiene. Then they spit it out like a prize fighter. Then the hygienist puts the water in their mouths. They swish around, and they spit it out, jump up out of the chair, out the door, and we're done. A couple times a year, I show up to the dentist. I get the cleaning that I need. I spit, and I, I swish it around my mouth. I spit it out, and I'm gone. And for far too many people, we practice dental chair Christianity. We show up when we need them. Right? I need you, God. I'm in a tough situation. I'm going to sit in a dental chair. You can pick some things. You can clean some things. I want to put it around, swish it around my mouth, spit it out, get up out of the chair, and I'm out the door. So I might use a verse here or a verse there. I might uh, consult you when I need you. I'll show up to church every once in a while just when I need you, just when I need you, God. I'm going to swish it around my mouth, spit it out, and I'm out the door. And Paul's saying that just can't be the case. When Jesus is the source of your contentment, he becomes the, the source of your deepest satisfaction. And there's nothing else in life that satisfies like him. Now, I started my sermon quoting Indy's least favorite quarterback. So I thought, if I'm already in a hole, let's dig it deeper. And I'm going to close out by quoting the quarterback that they play today at 1 o'clock. This past week, Nick Foles, who won a Super Bowl a couple years ago with the Philadelphia Eagles, he was, uh, he was asked a question. Now, this is a guy who's won a Super Bowl, so he, he was a backup quarterback, becomes a starter, wins a Super Bowl, gets a big contract, goes to Jacksonville, gets injured in week one, sits out. He hasn't been able to play. And so a guy with all that potential gets asked this question just two days ago. Hey, like, you're, I know that you're a man of faith, but, like, you're a human being, too, and, like, when things don't go your way, how is it that you are responding to this? And so check out his response just a couple days ago. Though week after week, not playing, you're a football player. You're watching this young kid go out. This Minshew mania is going crazy. I know you're a man of faith, and I know you're trying, but you're also human. I mean, ever any doubts coming up in your mind as you go through that? No, that's where you know, right when this, right when I felt this thing break, and I was going into the locker room, I just realized, you know, I just realized, God, this wasn't exactly what I was thinking when I came to Jacksonville. Obviously, you come here and you want to create a culture and impact people. But at the end of the day, as I got it, this is the journey you want me to go on. I'm going to glorify you in every action, um, good or bad. And 
you know, I still could have joy in an injury. Um, and that, that's, people hear that and say, that's crazy. But it's like when you believe in Jesus and you, you go out there and you play, and that's, that changes your heart. And you only understand it when, you know, that purpose in your life, just like when I hoisted the Lombardi trophy. The reason I'm smiling is my faith was in Christ in that moment. I realized I didn't need that trophy to define who I was because it was already in Christ. And that's my message when I play. Same thing happens when I get injured. We tend to make this so much about us as human beings. We tend to make it about us as athletes. It's not about us. It really isn't. And if you make it about yourself, you're probably going to go home at night, lay your head on your pillow, and be very alone and very sad. And then hopefully someday you can find that purpose in your life. Because my purpose isn't football. It's impacting people. And I, my, my ministry happens to be the locker room. And I've been able still to get to know people, get to know these guys through an injury. Though I might not be playing that is difficult from a fleshly perspective, but from the spiritual perspective, from my heart, I've been able to grow as a human being to where I feel like I'm at a better situation here as a person than I was before because of the trial I just went under. And I know that's a sermon in itself, but that's how I go through life. And the good Lord's been there to, you know, it's not always about prosperity. I don't believe in the prosperity gospel. I believe if you read the word of God and you understand it, there's trials along the way, but they equip your heart to be who you are. So um, when I step on the field, I'm going against a man in Frank Reich who's very similar. He's a guy that I admire more than anything. He's a guy that has impacted my life so much, and he's going to be on the opposing sideline. So um, that's going to be fun. Clapping for the opponent's quarterback. I see some of you like. <laughs> a couple years ago, I, I got to tell you, I'm not really good at this. It's easier to preach it than live it. I'm not the greatest at contentment. A few years ago, I came across a quote that kind of punched me in the soul, <laughs> kind of rocked my world. It's a quote I come back to often to remind myself, to shake myself out of it, and, and to remind myself where my deepest joy should be rooted. It comes from a man named John Piper, and here's what he says. The critical question for our generation, for every generation, that's all of us, is this. If you could have heaven, so picture what he's saying, with no sicknesses, with all of the friends that you ever had, all the people you ever lost on earth could be there with you, all of the food that you ever enjoyed eating, all of the leisure activities that you ever enjoyed participating in, and all of the natural beauties that you'd ever seen, all the physical pleasures that you've ever tasted, and along with all of that, no human conflict, no natural disasters. Here's the question. Could you honestly be satisfied with heaven if Jesus wasn't there? The Apostle Paul is screaming off the pages to the Philippian church, no way, no way. You can give me all of that stuff. You can give me every single thing I've ever wanted, the perfect situation, all the circumstances that go exactly how I want them. But if he's not there, I don't want it. That's how the Apostle Paul would respond to that question. But I would ask you honestly, what about you? What about your life? Let's pray.